1: Anxious to get into the deal. I overlooked a lot of the older mechanicals and older windows, older roof XYZ. It didn't pay attention to the due diligence on those buildings. And I still made good money on them, but I don't think I made good money because I was a good investor in that
0: case. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
2: Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host, Joe Cornwell. Today, I'm joined by Jordan Moorhead, who's an Austin-based real estate agent. He runs a real estate team there. He's investing in joint ventures and mobile home parks. He's also a limited partner and some syndications. And Jordan was on the show previously two to three years ago. So Jordan,
1: welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Joe.
2: Take me through the last two, three years since you've been on the show. What has your focus been and how has your investing changed?
1: Absolutely. So I believe when I got on the show... I was mostly doing my own small multifamily deals and I'd started doing some passive investing. Since then, I've done a little bit more passive investing, but the majority of what I've done has been on the active side. We bought 37 single family homes, did burrs with all those properties. We've since sold a few, so we now hold 34 single family homes. And we took all the profits from those sales and bought a mobile home park, business partners and I did. That's been our main focus is essentially building capital over the last year and a half-ish. It's been a search for mobile home park over about the last nine to 12 months. It's been a very serious hunt for mobile home park. And we just closed one a couple weeks ago here.
2: Awesome. And tell me a little bit about the shift. Why did you stop buying single families, decide to sell them off? I don't know if you mentioned it. You said you 1031-ed, I presume?
1: We paid taxes on them. We didn't have anything identified, so we didn't want to be beholden to a 1031.
2: Gotcha. Okay. So why the shift? What made you want to jump out of singles and get into mobile home parks?
1: There's so much better scale. We bought a 30-lot mobile home park with the house. It was about the same work as buying one house, but... The cash flow is better. The goal of the mobile home parks, everybody's goal is to not own the homes. We were successful that mobile home park we bought, we own no homes, except the house that's on the property and the people just pay their rent. We bill back the utilities and they pay their rent. We didn't want to deal with the massive maintenance and repair costs that come with single family homes. And it wasn't as scalable as we would have liked. So we bought 37, about two and a half years. This last year, we just bought one. So a big reason we've shifted was, of course, our goals shifted. Of course, it's much easier to scale commercial real estate. But at the same time, it got a lot harder to buy them. I think we hit it right in this golden period, 2020 through mid-2022. And where we buy, prices have not gone down at all, but rates have more than doubled. Okay.
2: And you had been buying single family homes for the last five years prior to shifting into mobile home parks. Is that correct?
1: No. I had never bought a single family home, not to live in, not as an investment property before 2020, the end of 2020 to be exact. So I had always been house hacking. I was buying duplexes and then I was buying small multifamily. I had some six units at one time, class C minus six unit properties. So... Everything they tell you not to do, it wasn't big enough for on-site management. It was in the wrong area of town. It attracted the wrong tenants. You couldn't improve them and get the rents up because every time you'd improve them, they'd wreck them. So I learned the hard way, although I already knew it was the wrong way. So I was hanging out with guys that were syndicating 100-plus unit properties. And they were saying, get over this amount of doors, 70 doors as quickly as you can if you're going to stick in multifamily. And I said, okay, I'm going to stick with the smaller stuff. And that's how I'm going to get started. And it was kind of a hassle.
2: Okay. And what market were you investing in at that point? Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. Okay. And what markets are you buying mobile home parks in now?
1: It wasn't purposeful, but we actually just bought the one in Louisville, Kentucky. I love the Midwest. I've spent most of my life in the Midwest. Obviously, I'm in Texas now. I love the Midwest and Texas. I think that both are great places to invest in real estate. So, that's essentially where we're looking for mobile home parks right now is the Midwest and Texas and up through the upper Midwest. Cause I did spend a fair amount of time in Minnesota too.
2: Okay. I know you run an agent business. So at this point, which is taking more of your time? Is it doing investments? Is it running the agent business? And obviously I want to get into that a little bit more as well.
1: Yeah, actually the agent business. So my real estate team, I've got myself four agents, two admin that takes up the majority of my time. It doesn't take up an extreme amount of time anymore because of how I have it set up, but it takes up the majority of my time. The real estate investing I do is almost all with the business partner anymore. I only own three assets on my own. I do some passive investing on my own, but because of the partnership set up, that doesn't take an inordinate amount of time. So the majority of my time is spent on my business and I've never pursued real estate investing as a full-time business. I've always paid attention to people who've built extreme wealth. And it seems like more often than not, they have an active business and they invest that money from the active business into real estate. And that's what I'm trying to do.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It seems to be a very common theme and I follow that model as well. I operate a couple of businesses and I try to take all of my excess money and reinvest it into real estate. So let's talk a little bit about your agent business. How long have you been operating your team? What is your guys' primary focus? And I assume
1: you're based in Austin, is that correct? Austin, and we actually still work in Minneapolis-St. Paul too. I've got an agent there that I work with, and we still list a handful of properties, probably six to 12 a year. Okay. My main business in Austin, we work with first-time investors, which are really a mix of the first-time homebuyer, And an investor. So, what happens is the majority of our clients are house hackers. They want to buy a duplex or they want to buy a single family house and they want to rent out any other space that they're not using to generate income. Ideally, they want to be able to move out of this house in a year and cash flow. So, that's what I did for a long time. Every agent on my team is also a house hacker, and that's what we focus on. Interesting.
2: Fundamentally, house hacking is probably the strongest strategy for any first-time investor to get started. It's the lowest risk, lowest barrier of entry. So I advise all of my clients as an agent for first-time investors to house hack if they can, if they can fit their life around it. Because obviously there's some discomforts that can come with living in multifamily or even other shared living situations. So I think you have to sacrifice a little bit of comfort to make house hacking work at times, but absolutely the best way to start. And what led you into wanting that to be your focus and how are you finding these clients?
1: So what led me into wanting house hacking to be my focus was I just had started house hacking and I saw how powerful it was. So I had no money when I got interested in real estate investing, I had a couple thousand dollars. By the time I was ready to buy my first house hack, I barely had enough down payment for a $182,000 property. So I had to cash out part of an IRA to get into that first $182,000 property. While I was in there, I was able to learn and grow and earn more income. I saved up enough money to buy my first six unit in the first year of owning that first duplex. Two years later, I had moved out of the duplex. I sold it, did a 1031. I made a hundred and fifty thousand dollars roughly profit from selling that property. I'd remodeled it while I was in there. I lucked out, and a hailstorm came, and I got all new siding. So I took that hundred and fifty thousand plus about another fifty that I had saved up and bought two more six units. I just didn't have any other options. It was going to take me four or five years to buy my first house and save up enough money to buy my first rental property. And my progress would be just halted so much. And I was ready to do whatever I needed to do. It didn't matter. So when I got into being a real estate agent, I got into it because I loved house hacking and I wanted to help other people do the same. It just made sense. And I love what you said of for anybody that wants to get started and has a a clear goal, but it's really for anybody and everybody and anybody can do it. Everybody has this excuse of why they can't do it or why it's not for them. And it's really just that it's it's an excuse. Anybody can do it. You know, lots of people in their 40s and 50s and 60s that live in apartments. You can live in a duplex too if you can live in an apartment. Basically, you have to ask yourself the question of what's my why? Why am I doing this? Do I really want to succeed? And I tell people if you've got half a million dollars sitting in the bank, you probably don't need to house act. But If like me, you had $6,000 to your name, there's not a lot of better options for you.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's an interesting dynamic to look at all the different ways you can house act too. And I've made some content on this in the years past, but there's so many ways, right? You can have a single family house. I think you mentioned where you rent out all the extra rooms. There are ways to do multifamily, whether that's duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, obviously live in one unit or the worst unit, preferably rent out the other ones. If you're on site, it's easy to manage, to learn how to do management as a landlord. And if you need to do renovations, it's easy to live in the crappiest one, fix it up, move to the next one, et cetera, et cetera. Repeat that process, rinse and repeat, which from the looks of it sounds familiar. And a lot of people have experienced that. Here's one just for anyone who may be considering house hacking. And I know a lot of our audience is a little bit more sophisticated, so they may have done this or be beyond that. But what I'll say is that there's ways to house hack that I would call luxury house hacking that's kind of a term I've thrown around. And it's where you live in a single family house, it can be as nice as you want it to be. But you have two options, you either keep it as a rental when you move out. And obviously, as most of us probably know, every year, you can get a new primary residence without any limitations from the lenders. And you can do a three and a half percent FHA or 5% down conventional typically. And then, move on to the next one. And you can either roll your equity. Obviously, the market we had the last 10 years where real estate values were raising exponentially every year, you could roll your equity into a larger, nicer house, or keep it as a rental. And of course, keep that really favorable terms on your loan. But you're not even actually sharing your living space. You're just basically getting great debt on assets that are going to make sense to cash flow or build equity. So I kind of did a mix of the house hack, the live and flip, and I was able to renovate properties and then quickly after three, four properties, really build up a ton of equity in my personal real estate that I could roll into now our quote unquote forever home that we plan on being in. So a lot of ways to do it. I love the strategy. So tell me a little bit more about your actual agent team. What is the dynamic? And with this market we're in, obviously challenging, how are you guys navigating that?
1: Absolutely. And I get that question a lot of, how's this year going for you? Actually, it's the best year ever for us, and it's not because of the market. It's because we've gotten a lot better. We just continue to work with house hackers who, again, it always makes sense to house hack. If you can house hack and spend less on your housing payment that you're paying for rent, and it's going to cash flow when you move out, it's a no-brainer. So again, we work with house hackers, We added one agent this year, and we've gotten significantly better. Everybody on the team has. It's something we're always working on, getting better as people and as agents. And we've exceeded last year's production by about 33% already. I think we'll end up, we're going to end up higher than that, but not a lot. We wanted to double, so we didn't hit our goal. But best year ever and the slowest year in a long time is still an accomplishment to me.
2: Absolutely. I don't know many agents or teams growing in volume this year. So that's definitely absolutely an accomplishment. So I think I mentioned previously, but how are you finding and connecting with these potential house hackers that
1: you're working with? We do a lot of different things. Social media is real big for the house hacking crowd because generally the house hacking crowd is younger. They're typically on the younger side of things, not always. We do still find people on online leads like the whatever Zillow, pay-per-click, all that kind of stuff. We don't do a ton of that. but We do do a little bit of that. We do a lot of YouTube. I actually have a podcast called the Austin Real Estate Investing Podcast. We have a pretty vibrant meetup here in town. We talk about house hacking a lot. And again, a lot of the people that come to meetups are generally on the younger end of things. So those people just by proxy interested in real estate investing and they're younger and coming to meetups, Generally, the people that come to meetups are newer. They're not experienced investors. In my experience, I'm not saying that's everybody, but they're there to learn and we don't push it. We just talk about what we're doing and people show up and say, hey, I wanna do that too. So it's a very organic marketing that we do.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your joint ventures. I know you said that's how you started getting into some of the larger deals in the mobile home parks. What was the motivation to go that route versus trying a traditional syndication? And what was the thought process behind that business plan?
1: So I'm not against syndications at all. I'm not saying I will never do one, but it's just not on the map currently. For the joint venture and the partnership type setup, I just knew from experience that when I get focused on something, I only am able to do really one thing at a time. And I know that I need to stay focused on my business. So I said, hey, I need to find a business partner to do this with so I can focus on what I do best. It doesn't mean I can't spend a lot of time on that, but it's not the main thing. And I only have room for one main thing. Right now, that's our agent business because it's doing well for us. And I want to continue to grow it and make it better. So I needed to find a partner. It happened that my business partner I was buying houses with and I we were able to build a lot of equity. He was into mobile home parks too. We had all this equity in houses. So we sold a few houses, bought our first mobile home park. I kind of found him on accident. So he's a friend from grade school, believe it or not. He started real estate investing when he was 18. I didn't start till I was 26, 27. And we've just always kept in touch and he was interested in Buying bigger assets at the same
2: time. What is that dynamic in the partnership? So what are your responsibilities and how
1: did you set that up? Again, it was a more organic. I'm an agent, so I'm used to getting out there and prospecting and finding opportunities. That's more of what I do in our partnerships. I get out there, I prospect, I find opportunities. I learn new things. I like going to seminars. I like going to conferences. I like networking and masterminds all that kind of stuff. And he is more of a details or operations type mind. And again, we didn't plan any of this, but it's worked out very well because I am the go out and get it, go out and make things happen, kind of shake the tree and see what falls out. And he picks all this stuff up off the ground and make sure it happens. So there absolutely is some give and take. There's some times when we know the other person's doing more than the other. And we try to meet in the middle because of that. Yeah,
2: I think that one of my biggest investing mistakes is I spent so many years trying to do everything myself. I've talked to a lot of people that have this common issue, and it's tough to let go of control. It's tough to let ego aside and let others into your world and have some ownership of your world. And the issue when you try to do everything yourself for so long is that you may have success, but it is going to be much slower. So if you're trying to scale, it's difficult to do that at a, an exponential rate when you're trying to do everything yourself. So yeah, I spent my first five years or so just buying a couple of properties a year, making money, doing the burr, Everything was great. No problems necessarily, but it was just like, if I wanted to do that forever to get to 100 units or whatever, it would have took me another five years or more just at a slow snail's pace. And again, not that there's anything wrong with that, but if you're trying to scale and you're trying to build a business around your investing, it's difficult to do that when you're not willing to open up to partnerships. And then to your point about partnerships, sounds like you guys have a very symbiotic relationship, which is obviously one of the keys of a successful partnership. So it sounds like you guys have worked out that dynamic in a way that will last long-term.
1: Yeah, I think there needs to be a mutual respect for what each party is doing. And if you're dead set on accounting for, hey, I did X, now you must do Y, I think you're gonna have problems. And I think that's any relationship. You just have to understand that we're both heading towards the same goals. And there's going to be times when things are going to be a little out of balance. Maybe you feel like you're doing all the work this week, but maybe they're doing all the work next week. Just that in the partnership has allowed me to continue to grow and run my business and have some semblance of a life on the side. I work less now than I've ever worked because I have a team at work and because I have a partner on the investing side. So I had years where I worked from sunup to sundown every day, and I wasn't miserable by any means, but it's not a long-term solution. That's not how you get to where you're trying to go in life. Everybody's investing for freedom or working for freedom. You're not working to be beholden to your job and be beholden to your investments. So you're working from seven in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. That's cool for a while, But at some point in time, you say, Hey, I want to start a family or I want to do these things that are more important to me personally and not just be stuck in the work all day.
0: Yeah, I know.
2: Couldn't agree more.
0: We'll get back to the show. a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors, targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five-year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital. Dot the BAM companies.com.
2: I've told this story many, many times, but from 2016 to 2020, 2021, I probably worked 80, 90 hours a week. I was formerly in law enforcement before I went into real estate full time, and it just wasn't sustainable. And it, it cost me a lot in relationships and my health and everything else, you know. So it, you have to find a balance. And I'm not saying it's not worth doubling down on some of that. Investment, time, and focus to get to where you want to be. But at the end of the day, it's got to be worth
1: the trip to get there. I think so much too. It's so easy just to do things. I was at the best ever conference one year, or I was listening to one of these podcasts, and I remember Joe saying that he used to be Johnny on the spot with responding to emails. Like he would respond to everything as quickly as he could. But that's not making things happen. And he talked about that of now, you know, I respond to things when I'm able or at certain times during the day, but I got so stuck in the more is better type of thing. And I've learned now that just doing what matters is better. So maybe I talk to a few brokers in the morning and I get all my work done before noon. and I don't need to work the rest of the day or I get all my work done before a certain time and I'm done. But if you're not doing what matters, then you could work all day long. But if you do what matters and you do it at a certain time, then Essentially, the rest of the day is irrelevant and just busy work.
2: Yeah, that's a
1: fantastic point. I struggle with that
2: philosophy, but I completely agree with it. I try to think of what are my three things I have to get done today for today to be successful. And one thing I really want to work on is writing things down more, journaling, making sure I know what I'm doing today and this week and things like that. Because with all the balls that we have to juggle sometimes, things get forgotten, they fall through the cracks. That's definitely one of my goals for the next year. And to your point about feeling busy and feeling like you're accomplishing, and I don't know specifically what you're referring to, what Joe said, but knowing Joe, I would assume it's like you get that little bit of dopamine by firing off an email and answering a text. And it's like, you feel accomplished, but are you really doing the things that are meaningful in your business or in your job or in your investing? It's like, are you actually doing the things that are going to move the needle that are going to bring revenue, et cetera. It's like the book, The One Thing, which hopefully most of the listeners have read. If not, I recommend it highly. That's the whole point of the book is what is the one thing, the most important thing you need to do next to accomplish your goal. And you can break that down from a giant goal into a million little goals and what to do this week, month, day, year, et cetera, to accomplish the one thing. Anyway, all of that is great stuff and highly recommend people understand those concepts. If anything I just said sounded foreign to them to definitely learn those.
1: Yeah. Great book.
2: So let's spend a little bit of time on your experience as a limited partner. I know you said you've invested in some syndications and you don't necessarily have to name them. But what I would like to do is talk about your experience with them. And I want you to give advice to the listener who may be considering investing in a limited role in one of the syndication groups out there.
1: love it. I will name one of them. I invest with Ashcroft Capital and Joe Fairless. I've invested in two of their deals, one in Clearwater, Florida, and one in Dallas, Texas. They are going great. They have gone great from day one. The communication has been there. And I've learned a lot from investing. So I'm in seven different passive investments. Again, two of them are with Ashcroft. Their communication is great. And that's one of the biggest things because a couple of them are not going well. Surprise, interest rates doubled slash tripled, whatever. A lot of times went up more than that and some of the deals that aren't going well the communication has gotten more sparse what i would say if you're looking to be a limited partner in anything and i did not understand this at first getting into it there's more than just evaluating is this a good guy do i like this sponsor i really do think that's one of the most important things of passive investing is finding the right jockey finding the right sponsor for a deal you need to trust them you need to be able to communicate with them they need to have a good track record All of that stuff, but at the same time, you need to be able to evaluate the deal. You need to be able to evaluate the market, the demographics of the market, what's going on there, how their debt is structured, how their deal is structured. It's just so much more nuanced than, is this a good guy? And I paid attention to some of the smaller details when I got into a lot of these investments, but I put most of it on the sponsor, and I still think that's the right way to go. But I just kind of brushed over this stuff It's oh, you know, it's bridge debt, but they've got a rate cap and blah, 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 all these things. Oh, this looks like it's a great deal. I, and my biggest mistake was I evaluated it very deal specifically. So I said, this specific deal looks great. And I didn't put any thought in, does this fit into my investment thesis? Does this fit into where I'm trying to go? I just said, is the deal good? And I invested in a lot of what looked like great deals, but didn't fit my investment thesis and weren't getting me closer to my goals. And again, some of those are not doing well now. And I would not have invested in them if I would have been thinking about where they're taking me specifically and not just what the deal's doing. So a lot of them were saying hey, we're not going to cash flow for a year or two, and I said, well, the numbers look really good. Doesn't matter. My goal is to get passive income as soon as possible this deal does not meet that goal i should have stuck with something it was an eight or ten percent cash on cash return right away fixed rate debt over a long term who would have known when you're investing in bridge debt at the lowest rates we've almost ever seen probably will ever see that there's some risk involved there because everybody was doing it rates are really low and Let's get bridged in on everything. That was probably not my brightest moment.
2: Yeah, sounds like you take a lot of accountability in your decision-making and stuff
1: for people to do. So I made the investment. Nobody lied about what they were doing. I made the investment. I saw everything. Everything was laid out right in front of me. And I said, this investment looks great, but I didn't know how to evaluate them properly when I did most of them. I will probably take a pause on passive investing If I get some capital return from some of the passive investments I'm in, let's say the Ashcroft investments, I'll redeploy that with the people who did well, but I'm not going to take other money right now for me other than what I've already invested because I invested quite a lot into a couple different LP positions. Okay.
2: And so to summarize and correct me anywhere I missed, but to summarize, it sounds like for the limited investors who may be watching this show, you are wanting to find somebody who's aligned with obviously your values as a person and as an investor and the strategy that follows that psychology, let's say, because if you are wanting your money back in a year or two, Mm -hmm. then a lot of these, are not going to make any sense for most syndicators that I talk to. A lot of them are looking at three, five, seven year holds now. And obviously even potentially longer with the way the market we're in, because there's so many unknowns, so many variables that obviously the safer window is a longer window. So I think that this lesson could be applied to almost every aspect of investing. As an agent, we talk to clients all the time where they'll come to us and say, I'll make up an example. I'm a surgeon. I make $500,000 a year. I want to flip houses and make 20k on each flip and it's like why are we doing this this makes no sense to me i'm happy to sell you houses but why are you trying to manage a rehab out of state for 20k if everything goes really well because income's not your problem so why are you trying to generate revenue just using that as an example that type of investor would be so much better suited to either remotely invest in small deals limitedly invest in larger deals or obviously the joint ventures, as we mentioned as well. So again, using that as an example, you talk to some people and their goals don't align with the plan. And I think that that's something that limited partners have to be aware of as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I know all that stuff and would tell the same thing you just said. You're a surgeon, you make $500,000 a year, you probably shouldn't flip houses. It's, it takes a lot of time and energy and you're not going to make the profits you want and risk and liability and everything else. Exactly. And then for my own investing, I had this big why or this big goal. I want financial freedom to live my rich life, whatever that is. Let's say that's $10,000 a month. But I was investing in deals that compounded my net worth. My goal wasn't to grow my net worth necessarily. Obviously, that's a great side effect if your net worth grows. But I didn't want to grow my net worth necessarily. I wanted passive income. And I was investing in deals that had very good IRRs or very good returns. And again, I just kind of happened in the two for Ashcroft because I trust Ashcroft Capital and I heard Joe Fairless speak a lot and that kind of stuff. But some of the other ones I did that are going wrong, I should not have invested in because they didn't align with my bigger goal. That's great advice. All right, let's transition to the
2: lightning round. You ready? go. All right. Best ever
1: book recommendation. I got to say Cash Flow Quadrant. I know it's been on here a bunch before. I'm sure it has. It's an amazing book. It really helps you figure out how to structure your financial life.
2: Great book. Best ever way you like to give back.
1: I like to find charities that I'm passionate about. We raised enough money to build two different orphanages in India here in the last two years. I'm looking for my next charity. I'd like to raise money for something more local next but I like to give money boring but makes a difference give me a mistake from a deal you've done and the lesson learned from it not paying attention to due diligence um, a couple of those small six-unit apartment buildings I bought I was so anxious to get into the deal I overlooked a lot of the older mechanicals and older windows older roof xyz it didn't pay attention to the due diligence on those buildings and I still made good money on them, but I don't think I made good money because I was a good investor in that case.
2: Interesting. As somebody who's invested in a lot of old properties, I could not agree more. Those old buildings have (laughs) so many potential problems you have to be aware of. Buying something from 1900 is very different from buying something from 2000. So great advice there. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. How can people reach out, connect, and learn more?
1: if you google jordan moorhead m-o-o-r-h-e-a-d you'll find me pretty much anywhere but i think instagram is probably the best place to reach me and that's at jordan underscore moorhead and again it's m-o-o-r-h-e-a-d no e after the r and we will be sure to
2: link to that as well as your previous uh, appearance on the show Listeners, if you learned something today, please leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. Make sure you're following us on social media.
0: And Jordan, thanks again for your time.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Keep up the great work.
0: Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so